listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Ni hao, Jeff. You ready to go behind the headlines today? <laughs> I didn't say so, Jeff. I guess maybe that's the good news as I changed my entrance. Yeah, very good. Very good. I didn't know that you were bilingual. I am so not. I, 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 that's the one Chinese word I actually know. And I only know it from watching cartoons with my kids when they were little. <laughs> and, you, and, and all those people that say that cartoons are not educational. Yes, I can't even think of the name of the cartoon at the moment. But we are going behind the headlines today. And the first article that we're, we're breaking down is an article. Well, I'll just read the headline. The headline is, it's in the journal, China puts Spymaster in charge of U.S. corporate crackdown. I'll summarize the article, but... But, uh, but that's, we're going to cover that article. We're going to talk about an article called The Disappearing White Collar Job, which of course is about artificial intelligence. But the other thing I was thinking about in my intro is you're not actually, we're, we're on video, but we're only recording audio, but you're not actually wearing a white collar today, nor am I. So is the white collar job even a white collar job anymore? I can't think of the last time I saw either one of us in a white collar. So not yeah, even a thing. that's true. And, Maybe and that be. Wall Street Journal article actually specifically talked about what is white collar anymore. It used yeah. to be that you went to college and you worked in an office. Yeah. <laughs> Neither one of those things are true no. anymore, right? Or I guess yeah. the, the first one's still mostly true, but the second one's not. You wear a Lululemon t-shirt, right? So, and then the third one is you how did- Lululemon? Or do I? Yeah. I have a Lululemon shirt on right now, as a matter of fact. I did not know this about you. Yeah. I'm going to have to give our partnership some serious thought. I will tell you this. So it's funny. I, for some reason, I thought this would come up. I don't know why. It, is, it wasn't intended to bring it up. But when Lululemon burst on the scenes, or at least for me, burst on the scenes seven or eight years ago, I found the whole thing kind of odd. And then, you know, eventually at some point, I, I bought a shirt or a sweatshirt and I was like, this is the most comfortable shirt I've ever worn in my entire life. Once you realize that, you're like, oh, now I kind of get it. I kind of get why it's so it's so popular because it is so incredibly comfortable. So not that they're giving us any ad money here. So anyway, moving on. And the third article is how did Hyundai get so cool? Hyundai? Hyundai? Is it Hyundai or Hyundai? I don't even know how to say it. Yes. Yes. So let's start at the top. China puts Spymaster in charge of US corporate crackdown. I'll do my best to summarize what's going on. I'm more interested in, in, in some of the effects of this more than I am the details. So um, the article is about China's Xi Jinping installing a new state security czar by the name of Chen Yixin. I don't know if I got the name exactly right. And the article talks about it sort of being widely seen as an extension of the CC, CCP's efforts to clamp down on Western due diligence and consulting firms operating in China. That's actually what caught my eye on this article was just the fact that Bain was referenced multiple times as were a number of other due diligence firms that were sort of getting increased scrutiny, mostly about data practices. There was an article mentioned in there that the Communist Party leadership is, is, is strongly encouraging Chinese companies to shun big four accounting firms for audit work because Beijing's worried about data leaks. So essentially leaking data about probably the Communist Party back to US government, I imagine, or Western governments. You know, the net effect of all this, I guess what I found interesting, so, so all that to me is, like I said, what caught my attention was just the, the, the direct references to Bain and, and a couple other prominent firms that are doing, you know, investment type due diligence work in the Chinese market for Western investors, presumably. 
what I found interesting was there was a, a phrase in there that, that the Communist Party, essentially, the Chinese Communist Party, essentially is looking for high quality and in foreign investments. So essentially, what reading between the lines, what I kind of found was that it felt like the country is basically saying they, they don't really want Western investment anymore. So, you know, Western dollars have definitely been sort of pulling away from China over the last couple of years, but now it feels like there's like a direct statement saying we actually don't really want those dollars. And when they say high quality foreign investments, what they mean is they want investments that are going to help China build and secure its own industries and supply chains. So essentially, it's like they want investments in certain areas that are going to help them build up certain disciplines that maybe they don't have right now. So why does this matter? Before I get there, I guess the, my summary of the article, is there anything I, that I missed in there? I know you read some other companions articles that went with it that you think is important to point out for listeners? No, you're on a roll. Keep going. Okay. So I guess to me, why I find this interesting is that I see it as a move towards a broader regionalization of the global economy. So like back in 2020, I've, I've talked a lot about this, that you know we were doing a lot of work with some clients about developing thought leadership around you know regionalization of supply chains. So reshoring or, or nearshoring parts of supply chains back to the US or you know maybe within Central America or, or South America. And at the time, it was all about you know you're regionalizing the supply chain because all of a sudden there's new forms of risk that maybe really weren't a thing 10, 15 years ago. I actually think it's going more broad than that. I think now it's like, okay, now we're talking about the regionalization of the economy. So I think it's like, to me, that's why it matters because I think it's we're talking about not just the supply chain being rethought, but literally the nature of economic relationships being rethought. And I think that that has impacts downstream on consulting firms all over the place. I'm less interested in the like what it means to your consulting practice in China right now. I mean, clearly, if you're a firm that has exposure there, you're well ahead of this and you're more on top of this than I am, or, or probably you are. I'm more interested in kind of what it means to the greater order of effect for firms that are operating domestically and the opportunities it represents, because I do think it's going to represent a whole bunch of new opportunities as the global economy continues to kind of go through its, its, its change. It it's, continues to regionalize itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. The word that jumped out at me as you were sharing your thoughts was risk. This to me is a great illustration of what it means to operate as a global company. And so much of what's happening in China, I think, reflects the changing political winds. And my sense is, and I could be completely wrong on this, and I hesitate to say it on a, on a podcast, but my sense is that we're entering into a Cold War with China, that things are really cooling off, that American businesses for all the manufacturing advantages of producing in China offered and the billion plus resident market for products that lured people there. I think businesses are beginning to see that the promise is not living up to the reality yeah. and having to adjust pretty quickly. And COVID, I think, really lit that up for people and what the supply risks are. You know, so much of the clampdown in China is focused on the auditing of these supply chains because U.S. companies are trying to, you know, assess operational risk 
associated with, you know, these global supply chains, but also the reputational risk because, you know, a U.S. brand using forced labor or, you know, some kind of, of labor that isn't treated well can really take it on the chin in the U.S. And they're relying on those auditors to make sure that those practices aren't happening, you know, in those facilities and China isn't letting them in. Well, that's putting you at risk. And that's just one of, of many, many risks. Yeah. For firms that actually have a footprint there, like I said, I'm sure they're on top of this, but there was some definitely like direct situations where staff of the firms themselves are being questioned by the, the party, right? And there's repercussions of that for some of these firms. So, so it's, it's an interesting read. You had some data from another article that I, I want you to share, which was really interesting. You just mentioned it before we went live because I thought it was like really fascinating to share that, will you? So a survey conducted by the American Chamber of Commerce shows that about 27% of its respondents are shifting priorities to countries other than China when making their investment decisions. That figure was only 6% in the poll that was conducted late last year, late last year. So within six months. Six months. Yeah. So 4X, basically, something like that. 3, 4X. Yeah, that's startling. I mean, it's too nebulous to wrap your head around. On on some level, I think, like, what to do. What I kind of wrote down was, like, trace the narrative back to your clients and think about, like, you know, like, how does this affect your clients and what opportunities might it create? I mean, if you're a ops firm, it seems to me like supply chain reconciliation is not going away. If anything, it's going to continue and it's going to be a bigger part of what you're doing for the foreseeable future. You know, there's this whole discussion about regionalization of technology footprints. I know we kind of went through this. We bought a site for one of our clients that has offices in China years ago, five or six years ago. And, you know, if you want to have a global site, you know, and you have multiple entry points, multiple language entry points for, you know, domain, for different parts of the world, you can do all that on a single server, not in China. You know, you, you have to go behind the Chinese firewall to do that. So we had to have a separate instance for that experience. I think you're going to see more of that. I think that's going to continue. And, and that's just a website. That's not really even that big of a deal, right? You might think when you're thinking about data infrastructure and whatever else, obviously it gets a heck of a lot more complicated, you know? So in terms of, you know, data governance, data ownership, data transfer, all that stuff is going to be all more and more regionalized. So I just, I think you got to kind of think about all the different repercussions of this type of regionalization across your client base and just start to kind of talk through as a leadership team, you know, where does this all end up and what does that mean to what our clients need, you know, in the near term and the long term in terms of advice and guidance and start that now. Don't wait until, you know, legislation emerges or whatever. Start those conversations now because based on like, like that data point is almost like a good leading indicator, right? You know, it's not that the government's going to force it. It's more just, you know, that's where companies are going anyway. Related to that, if I were CMO of a firm, I'd be making sure I had a contingency plan in place if I'm operating in China and my firm falls into, you know, that <laughs> accusation of due diligence space. Yeah. or doing something irreparable or whatever the case may be. And I put my brand at risk. I, I want to make sure I have things in place to offset that because that's something you're going to want to move fast on. And I think unless you're a a big four or some other type of firm, chances are you're not going to have huge resources to combat, you know, the CCP machine 
if they're putting out misinformation about your your firm. Yeah. No, so I think it's something important to, to keep in mind in terms of the risk return equation. Yeah. All right, let's push ahead here. I think that those, that's a good thought. I hadn't even thought about that. So let's talk about the disappearing white collar job. You want to give us a, a rundown on this one? Well, I, I would call this a mega trend. You know, it's it's not a hot behind the, the headlines, but one that continues. And it's really associated with how quickly AI is moving and what the ramifications are going to be on businesses. And those ramifications primarily are focused on the people. Yeah. What people do you need? What people don't you need? I think history has shown that businesses strive for efficiency. And if they can automate something, they're going to automate it. I think everybody sees that that AI is going to eliminate roles. The article is about, well, which roles is it going to eliminate at, at, yeah. at what speed and what does that mean? So I think there's two sides to this story. One, what is the impact on the jobs and roles within professional services firms and what can be replaced or augmented with AI? But also on the flip side, what opportunities are there for professional services firms to answer those questions for their clients? Yeah. And those two things are, are operating in parallel. Yeah, there were some interesting data points in this. And I was just actually looking it up as we were talking. In the article, it says the number of unemployed white-collar workers is up 150,000 in March, which sounds like a lot. You're like, oh my gosh, 150,000 people. But I was just trying to do the math on that. The total U.S. workforce is roughly 164 million, right? So, you know, we're talking about, let me see here, 10 thousandths of a percent, <laughs> right? So obviously, if someone lose, lost their job, they're not a statistic. That's not my point. My point is more that, you know, as you read the article, it would talk a lot about like, it was talking a lot about how there's downward pressure on wages in professional services type roles down five to 15% in April compared to sort of wages being up five to 10% in construction and tourism and other areas. But I think the thing that kind of gets lost in the noise as you read this stuff sometimes is that the professional services starts from a much higher place, right? It's been kind of, you know, those types of careers and has had tremendous wage growth and tremendous employment growth over the last 40, 50 years. So, you know, kind of narrow in on the negative downside, it makes you think like the sky is falling when in reality, that's not really the case. I think, you know, to me, what I kept coming back to as I was reading this and this conversation keeps coming up, I see it popping up online. You've shared with me a couple articles about this kind of idea, like could AI disrupt consulting entirely? And I haven't really like written a piece or formulated a, a strong opinion on this other than I just don't see that happening. I, I, you know, it's like, is it a big technology that's creating a ton of change? Yes. But we've been through so many different technologies that have created so much change. And I just don't see a reality where it sort of like somehow disrupts the entire professional services business or something. And we can talk more about that. But let me pause for a second and let you just kind of react to some of the things I just said. A couple of thoughts. One, it's important to separate out, you know, this job market in terms of the general economic conditions we we find ourselves in, right? High interest rates and mm -hmm. inflation from the AI, right? And in organizations keeping their powder dry, getting in a position to weather a more severe downturn, eliminating middle managers, you know, short term or maybe long term, who knows. It's important to delineate between those two. 
right? And, and these figures don't necessarily, in these articles that we're citing, don't necessarily clearly show the cause and effect tied back to yeah. specific catalysts. Yeah. So that's one. Two, as it relates to AI and the restructuring of industries, you know, I've been saying for some time that SaaS companies are the professional services firms of the future. And to me, AI is the fuel for accelerating that that transition. Yeah. But to your point, it will reinvent the professional services space, but will it supplant it? I don't think so. For example, and this could change. This could change from a regulatory standpoint, but a algorithm is not going to sign off on audited financials. That's going to require a CPA, you know, reviewing those those things supported by AI, maybe. But ultimately, you know, that type of role would not go away. AI is not going to stand up in a courtroom and litigate for a case. So, yes, it's going to augment it. Is it going to replace it? No. But now we're talking about, you know, we can see the black and the white ends. It's the gray in the middle. And that's where the opportunity is, I think, for for innovation and thinking, whether it's inside your firm or outside your firm helping clients. Yeah, I think a lot of the the headlines around all of this, to me, they're just too blunt and they're too simplistic and too black and white. Reality is way more nuanced. And I just sort of like brainstormed this, this, this list super fast. Did QuickBooks eliminate the need for accountants? Did Excel eliminate the need for financial analysts? Did CAD eliminate the need for engineers? No, 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 right? Like, does it change those jobs? Of course it changes those jobs. Does you know the role of the advisor change with new technology? Of course it does. But does it supplant that person? Probably not. So I just don't see, to your point, a reality where AI consumes the entire sector. Is AI another tool that firms and their people are going to use to be get way better at what they do and do it more efficiently, to do it more effectively, to free up time and capacity and space to focus on more value-added activities, you know, relationship building, other types of things that you might be doing? Of course, but I just don't see it being a replacement for the human entirely. Now, there's going to be certain instances where it is, right? There, there's no doubt about it, where there's going to be certain tasks that are being performed that it does replace the same way that, you know, the best example I can think of is that, you know, there's a whole industry of professional typesetters for years whose job it was to set type on a printing press, right? Technology took that job away and those people had had to pivot into new jobs, right? That's just reality. I think that type of stuff is going to continue, but I just don't see, I laughed. There was an article you shared with me that I really liked actually. It was a good article, but there was this chart and in the chart, it sort of, it went sort of like from right to left in different functions. And it was looking at incumbents and new technologies. And in the far right in the, in the incumbent category was some consultants and it was like McKinsey, Bain and stuff. And at far left, the, the, the disruptive AI technology was deck robot. So a piece of software that you can use to sort of like, you know, help bring a, a PowerPoint deck to life is going to disrupt the entire consulting industry. It's sort of like the way the chart kind of implies, which is not really what he's saying at all. But that's the part that I kind of laughed about. If you just if you just glance at it real quick, you think that deck robot is going to disrupt McKinsey. And it's like, I, I, don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I don't see AI getting so rapidly fast that it, it goes from building the PowerPoint deck to, let me render uh, advice on your most you know, critical strategic initiative. <laughs> I still see that happen, but I could be wrong. 
So I don't know what, what else you want to say about this. I'll, I'll again, I'll pause and let you kind of react to what I said and tell me all the places I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm sure well, one of, one of the other articles that kind of dovetails with this is PwC made an announcement that they'll be investing a billion dollars over the next three years into AI. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting article. There was not a lot of substance in it. Part of me felt like it was a public relations ploy. Yeah. When you look at how they're going to invest it, you know, there were kind of three major areas. One is educating their current workforce. Two is hiring more AI specialists. And the third was acquisitions. That seems reasonable, you know, from a strategic perspective. But I started thinking about a billion dollars. How much could you really invest in AI technology. So I started doing some investigation, you know, using CB Insights and because they do a really good job of, of yeah. the venture capital flows and evaluations it's in, in the AI space. In the 13, I think it was 13 leading generative AI firms are all unicorns, well over a billion dollars in, in valuation. Yeah. And, you know, PwC spending what, 300 million a year on it over three years. Are you really going to buy something that shifts the trajectory of a, I don't know, what are they, 50 billion, 60 billion, $70 billion firm, PwC? I don't know, maybe, 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 yeah. you know, $50 million acquisition of a, a generative AI may may change the trajectory. Yeah, well, a couple of things come to thought my mind as you said. The first one is, you know, a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. Soon you're talking about some real money, Jeff. That's the first <laughs> thing that comes to mind. <laughs> the second thing that came to mind, though, was like, you know, is, well, there was three things that actually came to mind here. So the second thing was that juxtapose that headline, by the way, it, you know, who, who did that? Who was this again? This was, this was PwC. Um, PwC. So PwC is going to spend a billion dollars on AI. And how much time do we spend talking about EUI's failed split? Which of those two firms would you rather be right now? Would you rather be the firm that's like forward thinking, investing in artificial intelligence, or the one that's like looking backwards at the history, trying to figure out how to split its dying, archaic audit business from its consulting business and ending up in a, in a fight? In a, I mean, like, so to your point of PR, like, I, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. Like, which of those two firms would you rather do business with if you're the CFO of Toyota Automotive, whatever, making a company up, right? So that was the second thing that came out. And then the third thing, that kind of as you're talking is like I wonder if that billion dollar investment as crazy as this sounds is sort of a test and learn initiative for for them <laughs> to your point of like let's just kind of dip our toes in the waters with a, with a billion it's got a nice round number you know it'll play well in, in the press shows that we're committed and we're going to figure some things out and then we'll make a bigger and, and deeper investment behind the scenes later or maybe more publicly later doesn't matter but you know I, I wonder if maybe that's what's going on is they're just trying to kind of figure out how to apply the technology and the, before they do more I think my Comments were unfair to PwC. Not at all. When they weren't unfair at all. You know, having spent my adolescence of my career in those firms, I have a lot of confidence in those firms and their ability to figure it out. Are they on the leading edge? Or are they fast followers? I don't know. It depends. But they figure it out because they're yeah. filled with smart, driven people. Yeah. And they're going to apply it internally, you know, to get productivity gains for, for themselves and Salesforce or 
SAP or something, you know, they're going to be helping the largest organizations work through that stuff. I wonder, if, you know, I just had a mental moment, by the way. I wonder if there's a productivity school of AI and a growth school of AI. <laughs> Jeff McKay marketing model. And maybe that's the problem, you know, is that companies are, are, are going to focus on the productivity gains from AI and they're missing the entire thing. They're focusing on, you know, the top of the iceberg and they got to focus on the, what's underneath that, where, where they're going to get all the growth. That's so, so true. Yeah. I, I just had that conversation with a client Yeah, talking about automation, right? <laughs> you have, you know, RPA, robotic process automation, and then you have hyper automation informed by AI and those applications and the thinking behind them are significantly different. Yeah. And opening up that space is important, I think, for delineating what's the opportunity for a firm that has that capability. You can apply yeah. it on this limited basis or you could blow the doors open with another- Do something way. much bigger and broader. Like said, you know, do you want to be at EMY or do you want to be at PwC? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, a, that's a super, super blase comment, but that's that's my takeaway. I was like, yeah. I mean, my gosh, which of these firms would you rather do business with? Which of these firms would you rather work for right now? You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. So this last one, and we'll make this fast, but I found this really interesting because this was kind of a, a front page article, or I should say front screen article. Yes, I read the yes. Wall Street Journal. I don't get the paper anymore. Everything is, is online. But the article was, how did Hyundai become so cool? Yeah. And it just struck me because it had this image of a, a beautiful car. And in my own experience as a car enthusiast, I've really been noticing Hyundais on the road. So I was like, man, I got to read that article as a marketer and try to understand what's, what's going on here. And it was a great article. And there were several takeaways from it, even though that's a consumer product that professional services firms, I think, could really value from and apply to their own firms. And we'll put a link in the show notes. You can go to it. But there are, are three lessons that I took away. Before you jump to the lessons, let's just summarize the article real fast. I can do it real fast. I'll, right, I'll, give, you, real I'll fast. give you my two bits of what I took away from the article, just in terms of like the summary. Hyundai is the, the third largest car maker in the world behind Toyota and Volkswagen, which I think a lot of people probably don't know. Over the last decade, they have been elevating their brands with a combination of improved styling. So they've been, you know, sort of hiring designers from luxury European brands and bringing them in to sort of elevate the aesthetic of the vehicles. And they've been making massive investments in electric vehicles. And the latter has actually been helping them attract more affluent consumer base. And then they've also been the beneficiaries of from some very smart business decisions, one of them being a decision to, to stockpile silicon chips early or prior to the pandemic, something that Toyota did as well, which enabled them to have inventory when everybody was, else was out of stock. So the company is doing really, really well. They seem to have a very you know future-focused strategy around electric vehicles, design ethos, you know, just a lot of really good things going for them. And they're reaping those rewards. So 
Now, tell us what we can learn here. It's a good article, and, it's, and, it, and, it's, and it seems like a company doing really, really well. Yeah, I said there's three. I'm going to say there's five. Oh, okay. Five three things five. you can take away from this. Number one, brands evolve. And if brands aren't evolving, you're dying. Hyundai started out as a low-end, cheap car. It got a foothold in the market and has evolved and has evolved purposely. And we talk on this podcast constantly about managing the performance envelope of the firm and the brand evolution, the solution evolution go hand in glove. And Hyundai to me provides an excellent example of how to do that over time in a healthy way instead of these acute, you know, 180 degree pivots, rebrands that so many firms get into. So lesson number one, plan to evolve your brand, know who you are and and where you're going and why. Two, related to that, one of the things that Hyundai did really well is that they evolved through incremental change. It was just constant improvement and refinement. And they just refined implemented, refined again, implemented, refined again. And to me, that's what firms always need to be doing with the way they're communicating to the market, the way they're developing talent, to the way they develop their solutions. You cannot get caught in this trap of the core. This is who we are. This is just what we do. This is the way we've always done it. And given the BS of PS, incremental change is a lot easier than big change. Three, and this is one of the most difficult things for professional services firms, again, because of BS of PS. But one of the things that Hyundai does well is they make a decision and then they go, they execute on it. All right, we made the decision. Let's go. We're not looking back. We're moving ahead. In so many professional services firms, they make a decision, then they start to second guess it if they don't see success right away. There was a great sequence in that article where they they, had t- they took a concept car to the New York auto show, I believe it was. Everyone fell in love with it at the auto show. And that night, the I think the CEO and, and, and someone else were on the phone and said, we're making that car. And they just went, go. What was it was it three hours, you know, and like made decision to go, you know, no hesitation whatsoever. I, I, it was a really great quote. It's a great piece of the article. So keep going. I love yeah. it. The fourth one, and you you already alluded to this, is they hired the best designers from other automotive manufacturers. They knew that design was critical. They went out and they got the talent. They didn't just build it internally. But in order to move the ball quickly, they went out and recruited the best that they could get to come in and start designing their cars. And to me, that's critical for professional services firms. So many of the firms I work with, they can see where they need to get to or what they need to get to the place they want in terms of industry expertise or maybe a core capability, but they hesitate. They don't go out and get it. They think, oh, you know, spend 300 grand on that right now. What, how fast is it going to pay back or something like that? They get caught up in the short-term numbers and don't think about the long-term return and how that type of knowledge can, can scale institutionally 
if done right. And to me, it's one of the secrets of, of Hyundai. <laughs> hey, we like the way Volkswagen cars look like, or, you know, I, I can't remember where they all came from, but they said, go get that designer and bring them here and let's, let's let unleash them in a Hyundai culture. Yeah, I, I would. I will, I'll say I think it goes a little bit deeper than that, and that I would describe it as that they have built their own design ethos. Years ago, I was fortunate. I was in a group called the Association of Professional Design Firms, and I was fortunate enough to spend some time with um, an external consultant who had built the design, basically the design team at, at Samsung. And a lot of what he talked about is what where companies like these make mistakes is they bring in these designers from other places, and then they assume that great design is just going to happen. And it doesn't. You have to actually figure out your own ethos. Like what is your cultural perspective around design? My sense is they kind of followed Samsung in that journey because Samsung managed to do that exceptionally well. And so it's one thing you bring the talent in and then the talent has to figure out how to build that ethos for the culture in that particular instance. And I think that's probably holds true of anything. I mean, it sure is. It's a big part of design, but I would imagine that holds true in other things as well. If you do, like we were talking about AI, imagine if you said we're going to build a AI capability, you bring in smart data scientists, but then you also have to build your own ethos around the AI as well. So anyway, keep going. I want to hear number five. I, I love well. the way you articulated that because that is absolutely right. And it's, it's why the prudent pedal model works so hard on reconciling that core capability that the firm has, in this case, design yeah. and the culture. Where do you show up as your best selves and bringing those two together and unleash it? And there is a methodology approach, a point of view, our worldview on design. Yeah. On automobiles, the relationship of automobile to the human or whatever drives that ethos is critical. Yeah. And professional services firms need that. Some of our guests have illustrated this so beautifully. Dave Petnayak and his yeah. firm does that excellently. Jay Lobbs does it mm -hmm. well. I think Michael Burton's firm, Stitch, is building a firm like that. I think it's critical. And I love the way you articulated it. All right. The fifth and final one yeah. is they took advantage of market opportunities and captured their share of that opportunity. And that opportunity is the EV market, mm -hmm. right? That was a rising tide that all car manufacturers could take advantage of, like AI is right now. That's going to be the next management consulting trend, AI. What percent of that market are you going to get and how is your firm positioning to capture it? Hyundai has obviously done a good job of yeah. capturing their share of the EV market. So five things, evolve your brand, two, make incremental Change. Do not get stuck in your performance envelope core, but be constantly evolving, skating to where the puck is going to be. Know where you're going and why and how you're going to get there. Make the decisions and go. Don't look back. That's not to say that you don't trim the sails and refine, but you get going. You start executing. Go out and hire the right talent. Make the investment. Institutionalize that. Own it. Make it your, your own. And then the fifth one is capture your share of, of the rising market opportunities that are presented. I just think that was a great article to just 
is so applicable to professional. Well, I think, you know, I don't think the article is anywhere good as your perspective on it. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> I mean, the article is, it's, it's an interesting read. You're like, oh, this is kind of cool. And, you know, nice story. But, you know, it took someone like for you to basically say, hey, here's these five amazing learnings. Cause I didn't pick up on all five of those in reading it myself. I kind of got, you know, waylaid by, you know, backstories and side stories. So anyway, I'd highly recommend the synopsis more than the article, but I, I agree with you. You know what I, what I wanted to know after I read the article, by the way, was like, Mike, I would love to know who their lead consulting relationship is. Like what firm are they spending their time with? Because you and I both know a firm that's functioning or a company that's functioning on all of these dimensions so well at the same time, they've got an intimate relationship with a tier one or a really strong strat firm that's helping them get there. They're not doing this all by themselves. And I even Googled that a little bit and came up came up null. I had no, no answers really. There was a McKinsey had published a case study on some work they had done with them around some electric charging stations, but it was a very tactical project. And obviously McKinsey doesn't really publish case studies. But that was what went to my head was like, man, you know, they've got some really good relationships that are helping them advance this company in, in a really impressive way and would love to know more about them. So if you're listening and you and you do this work, feel free to raise your hand and we'll be happy to have you on the pod because <laughs> uh, it's great stuff. All right, man. How do you well, say uh, goodbye? Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I I should know that. That would have been the best way to end this pod. Let's look it up real fast. Let's see what Google will tell us. How do you say goodbye in Chinese? Actually, technically in Mandarin, right? Yes. The written answer is in written Chinese <laughs> language, which I don't, I don't speak. Well, I guess you fall back on your native language. Yes. Yes, it was a good time. Thanks for going on this journey. I think we had three good articles to talk about. And I think it was a good discussion. So Goodbye, Jason. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.